0: Good morning. I'm Jane Pauley, and this is Sunday Morning. It's the age-old question, is the glass half-empty or is the glass half-full? For the people of Flint, Michigan, that's far from an abstract issue. Some three years after the city's drinking water crisis first made national headlines, many Flint residents still don't know if their water is safe to drink. Martha Teichner will report our cover story. Hi! Everybody calls Paris? her Dr. Mona.
1: How's it going? She is one of the whistleblowers, an Iraqi American pediatrician who proved that the people of Flint, Michigan, were being poisoned by lead in their water.
2: We just see the trauma of fear, of anger, of distrust, of betrayal.
3: I'm already dying from my health issues, but y'all going to kill me even quicker.
1: I had this Sunday morning Flint scarred. And still angry.
0: Our Sunday profile this morning is of Paul Rudd, an actor whose credits span the spectrum from comedy to superhero action. Tracy Smith will make the introduction.
4: So who the hell are you? I'm Ant-Man.
0: As Ant-Man, actor Paul Rudd can do
3: the astonishing. Nailed it! But what he does off-screen to raise money for charity is also kind of awesome. How important is this event? This
5: is an amazing event that has snowballed into a major event. We're really hoping that this year we get $2 million.
3: Paul Rudd's real superpower, later on Sunday morning.
0: We'll have those stories and more just ahead. Is the glass half empty or is the glass half full? It doesn't make much difference if you live in the Midwest city where people worry if the water is safe to drink at all. Our cover story is reported by Martha Teichner. Hi.
1: Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha did not set out to be a whistleblower.
2: It is my duty as a pediatrician to, to be an advocate for my kids.
1: It was as simple and as complicated as that. Dr. Mona, as she's called, is a pediatrician at Flint, Michigan's Public Hospital and a professor at Michigan State University's College of Medicine.
2: It's your heart. Isn't that cool? I happen to be kind of the right person at the right place with the right training at the right time. The water crisis literally kind of fell in my lap.
1: A horrifying crisis that branded Flint as the nation's poster child for government gone wrong. Through no fault of their own, they were poisoned by their
0: state's government screwing something up. Here's the On
1: April 25, 2014, Flint switched from water purchased from the city of Detroit to water pumped from the Flint River as a way to save money.
3: I'm already dying from my health issues, but y'all gonna kill me even quicker.
1: It didn't take long before Flint residents started complaining that something was wrong with the water. Dogs and cats are dying. The tomatoes were turning black.
0: My water comes out of my faucet smelling like it came out of someone's butt.
1: General Motors took its local auto plant off Flint water because it was corroding engine parts and filtered water coolers were installed in the state office building. And then the truth came out. In addition to disease-causing bacteria, and even carcinogens, Flint's drinking water was loaded with lead.
6: The levels of lead, one sip, would have caused her blood lead
1: of her child to be lead-poison. Just one sip of water? One sip of that water. Professor Mark Edwards, an internationally recognized water safety expert at Virginia Tech University, had been called in by Leanne Walters, a Flint mother with a sick child to test the water at her home.
6: The first thing we did is we worked with her over the phone to sample her own water. That showed her own water was hazardous waste. That was like lead, literally high? 13,000 parts per billion. That's enough if one glass of that water was ingested that
1: could hospitalize a child. And the federal threshold for action is? About 1,000 times lower.
6: Seconds, Edwards'
1: team then tested home citywide and found more with high lead levels. But the authorities denied there was a problem.
2: You know, I freaked out because I know what lead does. All pediatricians know what lead does. It's a irreversible neurotoxin. Enter Dr. Mona. So I really went on this quest to find out, is that lead in the water getting into the bodies of our children? I first tried to get that data, that surveillance data, from the county and the state and couldn't. I thought that was odd because they had this data.
1: Suspicious, she was determined to find out some other way.
2: Our clinic here, the Hurley Children's Clinic, we see the most Flint kids. So we decided to look at our own data and in record speed kind of ran the numbers. These results are concerning.
1: On September 24th, 2015, Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha revealed that in the 17 months since the switch to Flint River water, the number of children with high levels of lead in their blood had doubled And in some neighborhoods, tripled.
2: For high-risk groups, especially those infants who are on the formula, and the pregnant moms, we, we would say no tap water.
1: This was the frightening proof that Flint water wasn't safe. But still, the state stonewalled.
2: The DEQ spokesman,
1: Department of Environmental Environmental
2: Quality, called me an unfortunate researcher, that I was causing near hysteria. The governor's office uh, spokesperson said that I was splicing and dicing numbers.
1: And how did that make you feel?
2: It made me feel really bad. So I was, um, uh, after hiding under the covers for a period, I woke up around 3 a.m. and there was this kind of new strength that I found inside me. And I realized that every number in my research was actually a kid. A child I'd cared for, and it was those kids who
1: got me out of bed and said, fight back. Fight back in a city that, for decades now, seems to have been fighting losing battles. Once, Flint was among the most prosperous communities in the country, the birthplace of General Motors. Today, GM's presence here is dramatically reduced. Flint's population is half what it was in 1960, the city's decimated neighborhoods often occupied by people too poor to leave. Flint's finances were in such bad shape that in 2011, the state seized control of its government. And what becomes of the role of the city council and the mayor?
2: They're still there, but they're puppets. They have no, they have no role.
1: So if they said, we shouldn't be on Flint River water... And
2: they did. They voted to... The city council said, hey, we don't want to be on Flint River water. but It didn't mean anything.
1: What was perceived in Flint as the hijacking of democracy resonated with Dr. Mona Hanna-Attisha. She's the daughter of Iraqi immigrants who were afraid ever to go home after Saddam Hussein took power.
2: I was raised in this milieu of acutely knowing what injustice was. And I grew up feeling so lucky and so fortunate that I was here.
1: Dr. Mona's revelations were the game changer. They forced the state, finally, to stop denying the undeniable. Blood lead levels among children
2: under six years of age in other parts of the city of Flint were two times that of the rest of Genesee County. The state conceded that, yes, um, we re-looked at our numbers, and, yes, there is a lead problem.
1: It turns out vital chemicals required by law to control corrosion in old lead pipes were not added after the switch to Flint River water, causing lead to flake off. Flint reconnected to Detroit's water system, and Michigan's governor, Rick Snyder, apologized.
6: I know apologies won't make up for the mistakes that were made. Nothing will. But I take full responsibility to fix the problem so it will never happen again.
1: Fifteen current or former state and city officials and staff were indicted as a result of contaminants in Flint's water. Like water, money has been pumped into Flint, over half a billion dollars from the federal government, from the state, and from private donations. All of the city's lead pipes are being replaced. A showplace preschool was built. A registry was established to monitor the health of anyone affected. But then,
0: this spring... The state of Michigan is reportedly ending distribution of free bottled water to residents of Flint.
1: The state's justification? Multiple studies showing lead levels below the federal limit for more than two years, although using filters is still recommended. The science seems to say Flint water is safe many residents don't believe it if you
6: ask anybody in the city of flint right now today and they tell you they trust the water they're either a paid or delusional from it chlorine and all this stuff. tony
1: paladino has no That's doubt it. why no, his really family's know. hair is still falling out the bacteria,
3: the other chemicals that are in it
1: the flint water crisis loss of trust is its legacy. Never mind that it was corroding our insides, never mind it was poisoning us, never mind it was killing us. But Bishop Bernadette Jefferson is leg- one of three residents we lied. talked to. The ones that we trusted to be have a voice for us. They
0: lied. Back in 2015, I had lost twins, but I was also pregnant again in 2017 with twins again, and I've lost them again. Nikia
1: Wakes blames the water for her miscarriages. She plans to join multiple class-action lawsuits. I will never trust the water again here in Flint. According to Virginia Tech water expert Mark Edwards, Flint isn't the only place where the tap water is suspect.
6: You can't trust the lead pipe. It's a ticking time bomb. You think you've got it under control, you forget about it, and suddenly the lead will start to fall off when it wasn't before.
1: Lead pipes are still common across the United States. So is lead solder and plumbing. And that's an important message for
6: the roughly 10 million Americans who have those pipes in front of their house. I just wish we knew where all these lead pipes were, because we don't.
1: How do I know that my house is free of of dangerous piping?
6: The only 100% way to be sure is to dig a hole in your yard and to see what's there. Ultimately, that's what we had to do in the
1: As for Dr. Mona, she has written a book about the invisible danger of lead in Flint's water. Is the water crisis a crime scene?
2: It is, it absolutely is a crime scene. And there are victims, there are absolute victims and there are villains. Sometimes it, it takes a disaster for cities to, to be reborn. You
1: She's and- become a cheerleader for the good that's come out of the water crisis. Better education, better health care. But even she <laughs> remains wary. Do you Yourself trust the water here? I
2: drink bottled water here.
0: Steve Hartman has found a girl in Seattle with a history lesson to share.
4: So what were you here for? Soccer game. 10 year old Sarah Haycock says she was just walking through this park in Shoreline, Washington. So just about a year ago. Yeah. When she came across something curious, it was like the beginning of a mystery. Yeah, a stone with a plaque.
0: This is what I first saw.
4: It was clearly a tribute. But to who? Edwin T. Pratt
1: 1930 through 1969. And I'm like, wow, that's a really short life. I just did the quick math in my head. We were like, he died at 39.
4: Did you wonder why?
1: Yeah, I'm just like, that's not typical.
4: And since there were no other markings and no one around to ask, Sarah took it upon herself to learn all she could about the life and death of Edwin Pratt. She learned he was director of the Seattle Urban League, worked on school desegregation, and was the first black person to move into Sarah's town. It was a bold and fatal decision. Pratt was assassinated right there on the front porch, nine months after Martin Luther King Jr.,
1: It was just the lack of recognition that really, I think, maybe stunned me. Stunned you? Yeah. It just felt like he's got to have something more than just a plaque outside of a bathroom.
4: About that same time, across the street from Sarah's school, she noticed the district was putting up a new early learning center. She found out it didn't have a name yet, and her wheels started turning. Sarah launched a petition drive and went all over town, explaining to anyone who would listen why that new building should be named after Pratt. Thank you
7: for helping me honor Edwin Pratt.
4: She did a ton of stuff. Curtis Campbell is with the school district.
6: It's difficult times, um, but brighter futures are ahead of us, and it's because of kids like Sarah.
4: Indeed, a lot of people in Shoreline have been inspired by Sarah, and many have boarded her bandwagon.
1: Would all of those here tonight to support Edwin Pratt please raise your hands.
4: This was her eighth school board meeting and by far her most important.
1: The adoption of new name for Early Learning
2: Center.
4: The board was about to vote on her suggestion. All in favor say aye. 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 All opposed say nay. The vote is unanimous. The motion carries. Thanks to Sarah, there will never be another kid in Shoreline who doesn't know the name Edwin T. Pratt. You're a champ. And someday, if she keeps this up, Thank you. everyone will also know the name Sarah Haycox.
7: I love you
1: so much. Thank you. Before there were podcasts,
3: there was television. Remember, see what's new under the sun every Sunday morning.
0: For decades now, no journalist has been better at asking tough questions and getting candid answers than the legendary Seymour Hirsch. This morning, our David Martin tries to turn the tables.
7: These are my, my fancy interviews. You tell me you could translate one page from one thing. Here.
8: Welcome to Seymour Hirsch's office. Buried in these files are some of the greatest scoops of all time. So you see where people get the impression that you're a mad scientist, right? No, 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 that's a good Journalism awards, including the Pulitzer, line the walls and spill onto the floor. I won five pokes, more than anybody, I will say that. He is, as the title of his memoir says, a reporter. Or, as the opening line puts it, a survivor from the golden age of
7: journalism. What's the
4: golden age?
7: Oh, my God. This would be the Watergate era.
4: During the past year, the wildest accusations have been given banner headlines and ready credence as well.
7: We all felt that we were the truth-tellers. Our stories uh, were much more credible than anything the White House would say, any denial they made. There was never anything like it. What would you call today's age? Uh, The age of uh, very dumb cable news controlling, dominating everything.
8: So you call yourself old school?
7: Oh, my God. Uh, Ancient school.
8: The son of immigrants who barely spoke English, Hirsch grew up poor on the south side of Chicago and bounced around in the news business until 1969.
7: I'm still freelancing. <laughs> Can't get a job. When someone gave him a tip that changed his life. He said An enlisted man went crazy and killed 75 people.
8: That put Hirsch on the trail of the My Lai Massacre, perhaps the single biggest expose of the Vietnam War. The enlisted man turned out to be an officer, Lieutenant William Calley. His attorney, George Latimer, wouldn't say where Calley
7: was, but Hirsch tracked him down at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I said, hi, my name is Hirsch. And he says, oh, yeah, my lawyer told me you would find me. So we sit down, and he tells me his story. So how many newspapers ended up running that story? About 30 papers, 35 papers. Everybody put it on page one.
8: Then Hirsch set up an interview between one of Calley's <inaudible> soldiers, Paul Meadlow, and Mike Wallace of CBS News. I might have killed about uh, 10 or 15 of them. Mm-hmm.
7: Men, women, and children?
8: Men, women, and children. And babies. And babies. Now, The New York Times, which had not run Hirsch's original Milai story, also wanted to interview Meadlow. But Hirsch paid them back by hanging up the phone on managing editor Abe Rosenthal.
7: And so two minutes later, he calls back, do you know who I am? And I said, yes, sir, and I hung up again. Yet three years later, Rosenthal hired Hirsch.
8: He might be obnoxious, but as the Times' Washington bureau chief put it, when you consider what he has done on My Lai and other stories without any organizational backing, you can appreciate his zeal and skill. Hirsch turned his manic intensity to the biggest story of them all, Watergate. And even Richard Nixon, as recorded on the White House tapes, was impressed. One of his jaw dropping scoops came
7: from a senior FBI official named William Sullivan. He invited me to lunch. <laughs> and when he got up to leave, he said, Stay around after. Have finished your coffee. And he said, I left something on my chair, like in the movies. And I drank my coffee and I got up and I picked it up. 17 wiretaps, 15 of them signed by Kissinger. It was where the wiretaps were placed and who were the technicians who did it. Henry Kissinger,
8: then Nixon's national security advisor, had asked the FBI to wiretap some of his closest aides to find out who was leaking. But that was not the biggest story Hirsch was working on.
7: There was a big, huge, horrible story on the inside about domestic spying.
8: The revelation that the CIA had violated its charter against spying inside the U.S. and kept dossiers on 10,000 anti-war activists was a scandal second only to Watergate. Peace now! Peace now! Hirsch confirmed that story with none other than the director of the agency, William Colby. You get the director of the CIA to say to me, it's not as bad as it seems. He's saying it's not as bad, and you're saying bingo. I've got confirmation. A now declassified CIA history contains a transcript of Colby talking about Hirsch with Deputy Attorney General Lawrence Silberman. Silberman. The SOB has sources that are absolutely beyond comparison. Colby. He knows more about this place than I do. After a seven year run of blockbusters, unlike any in the history of American journalism, Hirsch quit
7: The New York Times. I was going to burn out. I just knew it. Also, I'm being held at that high standard. You know, you got to be great. What's and, wrong hey, with being held to a high standard? It's when you
8: ask me, it's scary. He went to work for The New Yorker, where he continued to turn out major exposes, most notably the Abu Ghraib prison scandal. But in journalism, you're only as good as your next story. So you know what the talk has become now?
7: Oh, he's lost his fastball and stuff like that.
8: Have you lost your fastball?
2: I
7: don't think I ever had a real fastball. Oh, come on.
8: Hell you no. threw, you no. threw heat.
7: I threw heat. I'm still throwing heat. In 2014,
8: he threw what can only be called a wild pitch with this story in the London Review of Books. After the bin Laden story, hell broke up. The talk changed from Hirsch has lost his fastball to Hirsch lost it, period. Hirsch wrote that everything President Obama and his national security aides had told the nation about the bin Laden raid was a lie. The SEALs had not pulled off a daring night raid. Instead, Hirsch wrote, the Pakistanis had been holding bin Laden prisoner and invited the SEALs in to stage a mock raid, a secret deal cut by then-CIA director Leon Panetta. I talked to uh,
7: Leon Panetta. Um, Panetta's the one that should have told the truth. He didn't. He says, it's
8: all fantasy. I don't know where the hell he got that. There's just not a shred of evidence to support that. It's the opposite. The Pakistanis never gave us any help. So is he just
7: lying to me? I have a completely different story from completely different sources. For the record, you stand by, oh my God, I stand by all those stories. This is stuff I haven't written yet.
8: Somewhere in this Warren of files, which he keeps only on paper so the government can't hack into his computer, lies Hirsch's next blockbuster.
7: How old are you? 81. So why do you keep doing it? It makes your blood a little redder. Come on, it's there. There's something about a good story.
5: That's love, man. It sounds horrible. Of course it's horrible. It's suffering and it's pain and it's, you know, you lose weight and then you put back on weight and then you, you know, you call them a bunch of times and you try and email and then they move or they change their email. But that's just love.
0: Paul Rudd is an actor of many roles who's proven himself in every sort of movie. But despite it all, he doesn't seem to have forgotten where he came from. Tracy Smith has our Sunday Profile
4: who the hell are
5: you i'm ant-man ant-man what you haven't heard of me
3: at 49 actor paul rudd might not seem like the superhero type Ah! as the marvel comic book hero ant-man he doesn't really have any superpowers the magic suit does all the work what the hell you have to know how to punch
5: i was in prison for three years i know how to punch show me
3: for his part rudd is valuable
5: you want to show me how to punch
3: And vulnerable.
2: That's how you punch.
3: It's a combination that's made him a star. From action films to rom coms, Paul Rudd has quietly become one of the biggest names in Hollywood, the drinking buddy with a certain sex appeal. Slap at the bass, mommy. Most celebrity interviews are done in fancy hotels. Paul took us to McCoy's, the tiny New York City bar where he's been a regular for years. I don't know, 15 years ago, did you ever fathom being a Marvel superhero?
5: No, of course not. I figured early on this was what I wanted to do uh, for a job, and I certainly hoped it would work out and that I would be playing lots of different parts, but I don't think I anticipated uh, being an ant. Ant Ant-Man and the Wasp teaming up.
3: In this summer's sequel, Ant-Man and the Wasp, he's equal parts Avenger and Punching Bag. Again, not your typical superhero, but Paul Rudd hasn't exactly led a typical life. You often hear about celebrities with traumatic childhoods. That wasn't the case here. Paul Rudd's British-born parents, Michael and Gloria, made their home a happy one. It was also a bit transient. Dad was an airline exec who moved the family around a lot, settling in Kansas City when Paul was 10. By then, he was used to being the new kid.
5: I think I learned early on that if I can if I can, somehow make people laugh, it's I'm not going to get beat up, and I can maybe be accepted into a group a little bit easier. Did you get beat up? I didn't get beat up, no, but um, I always felt a little bit, uh, on the outside. You know, certainly in Kansas, and being Jewish was a bit of a, an anomaly in the town that I lived in and the school that I went to. Um, so I think I I I think I always felt a little bit on the periphery of things.
3: He wound up at the University of Kansas and raised money for acting school working, appropriately enough, with ham. You did some interesting jobs. You glazed hams?
5: Yeah. With glazing hams, it was more than just uh, a basic glaze. <laughs> I had to. It was a full day. A torch and a sugar sifter. And it's a kind of a repeated motion of sift. <laughs> you know, just at the back of it. You get a rhythm down. That's where the art comes in. And then, uh, then you got to wrap it and weigh it and get it out front. Because especially during the holiday season, those hands are, there's a, it's a quick turnover.
3: But those early jobs teach you something, right? I mean, did your they, parents. Well, they
5: taught me that I don't want to glaze hams for a living.
3: <laughs> hey, James
5: Bond. In America, we drive on the right side of the road.
3: I am. You tried driving in platforms. By 1995, uh, Paul Rudd wasn't Christ's in Kansas party. anymore. In Clueless, opposite Alicia Silverstone, he took his place as one of the film industry's leading romantic funny guys. Are you saying
5: you care about me?
3: It's interesting because you got Clueless, and a lot of people say that was the breakout role for you, right? I would imagine that the world kind of opened up as far as movie roles. And it was then that you said, I'm going to go to New York, do some theater.
5: Yeah. Much to the chagrin of my agents.
3: Still, the play he was in won a Tony, and he found a few other things to do.
5: Really, I'm I'm a pretty nice guy. Just ask my parole officer.
3: In the space of a decade, Rudd went from guest star...
5: Pa- apparently I'm not a funny guy.
3: <laughs> <laughs> ...to movie star.
1: Have you ever thought about killing me? Oh, yeah. Really?
5: Sure.
3: How would you do it?
5: Woodchipper.
1: A woodchipper? Yeah. A wood chipper? Yeah. Wow.
5: I know. Did you see Fargo?
1: Yeah.
3: <laughs> no woodchippers here. Paul and his real-life wife, Julie, have been married for 15 years, and they have two children, Jack and Darby. Of course, the Rudd story has some sadder moments, too. Paul was especially close to his dad, who died of cancer in 2008. When your dad passed away, how did it change how you looked at the world?
5: Well, it just knocked my world off its axis. And you have these weird thoughts, it's like, today's the first day of my life my father hasn't been alive. Like, I'm on earth and he's not on earth. And uh, I just remember having lunch a week later with a friend of mine who had lost his dad. And he said, uh, you'll never get over it, but you will get through it. And that's certainly the, the case. I mean, I'm not over it, but... Uh, and there's certain, you know, like, I have a daughter, my dad didn't even know he would have had a granddaughter. And uh, it's like, that's just unacceptable. It is. Yeah, it's just the way it is, and you, 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 know, you get on with your life.
3: Here comes the first pitch. Dad might be especially proud of this. Paul Rudd is co-founder of something called The Big Slick, an annual weekend of fundraising to benefit Kansas City's Children's Mercy Hospital. Whoa. <laughs> the whole Rudd family gets into the act. Paul's sister Mandy helps run the show. Nephew Henry is the bat boy, and the lady in the striped dress is Paul's mom, Gloria. What does this event mean to you? Gosh, besides really hard work, but it's a labor of love.
2: We truly do pinch ourselves and get chills when we get to talk about the fact that we actually
3: get to be a part of this. Yes. So we, for drank, all of us. we drank the Kool-Aid. For Paul himself, it's clearly more than just another photo op. Before the game, he and his pals spent a few hours with the kids at Mercy. And being Ant-Man really meant something.
5: I would go into those hospitals for years and the kids were always so nice and they didn't know who I was. You know, they, weren't, they weren't really old enough to <laughs> see any of the Apatow stuff, any of the rated R comedies. And then Ant-Man changed that. And so now these kids are uh, aware of who I am and, uh, and it makes the visits with them, like it's, it's, it's really fun for all of us. <laughs>
3: This year, the Big Slick raised more than $2 million in a single weekend. And all of it goes straight to the hospital. Now, I know this is a huge group effort, but I have to ask you as sister and mom to just brag a little bit about Paul. Oh,
1: Oh, that guy. (laughs) That guy, That guy, He's pretty incredible.
3: Which, you know, I'm biased anyway. But, and there are many moments in life when you have a child where you have a proud moment. And when I see him with anybody's children, uh, is when I love him the most. You know? And around here, you might say they feel the same way. You got an arm. Paul Rudd doesn't really have superpowers, but then again, maybe he does.
0: I'm Jane Pauley. Thank you for listening, and please join us again next Sunday morning.